Well, good evening. Everyone, thank you for coming out uh, to our Bible study tonight. Uh, before we get into the study, um, a prayer letter has arrived. Beautiful, colourful, and uh, it, it explains uh, what's happening uh, in India at the moment, outlines some of the uh, specific needs uh, that the ministry has. And uh, if you would like uh, a copy, there are some on the, on the bench out there. Please use them to, to pray, um, you know, more, more effectively uh, for, for the Nyers and for the many other pastors uh, in that particular ministry. Tonight we're going to be considering uh, Jeremiah chapter 11, verse 18, through to chapter 12 uh, and verse 6. So this will be our our text for tonight, Uh, but let's open in a word of prayer. Uh, Father, thank you uh, for this night you've given to us. Thank you for your word. Thank you that we can spend uh, a few moments uh, studying it together. I do pray that uh, the Holy Spirit would help us to understand it. And, and apply it uh, where relevant. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, in this section of the book of Jeremiah, from chapter 11 through to chapter 20, we find certain passages of Scripture which are referred to as Jeremiah's confessions. And there are six in total, and they are Jeremiah expressing his complaints unto the Lord. Now, these particular confessions or complaints don't seem to be publicly pronounced, but rather they are laments or prayers uttered in private by the prophet. And within them, we get a glimpse into the inner struggles of the man of God. We see through the window of his inner man and get a taste of the turmoil that raged within like the unsettled ocean. And in these confessions, we're given a look at the inner struggles of the man of God, unlike too many other places in the Old Testament. Now, we're often left in the dark when it comes to how one is feeling or what one is thinking in the Bible. As you read through the Bible, do you ever think, I wonder how they felt at that particular time? I wonder what was running through their mind. How did they process what unfolded? Remembering that those in the Bible, except Jesus, okay, who didn't have a sin nature, but the others were exactly the same as us. The heroes of the faith are not some super soldiers in the Lord's army who never had struggles. They're not some elite class like the Avengers with special superpowers, but they struggle just like us. And this is revealed very clearly in the confessions of Jeremiah. These texts are like a viewing platform that enables you and I to see the inner struggles and turmoil that Jeremiah wrestled with in his life. And the things that he wrestled with are still relevant for us. Now our text contains the first uh, two confessions. The third is chapter 15, verses 10 to 21. The fourth is chapter 17, verses 14 to 18. The fifth is chapter 18, verses 19 to 23. And the sixth is chapter 20, verses 7 to 13. Okay, so let's uh, read our text, which contains the first uh, two confessions, which paint a picture of some of the inner struggles of Jeremiah the prophet. So Jeremiah chapter 11, reading from verse 18. 
And the Lord hath given me knowledge of it, and I know it, and thou showest me their doings. But I was like a lamb or an ox that is brought to the slaughter, and I knew not that they had devised devices against me, saying, Let us destroy the tree with the fruit thereof, and let us cut him off the land of the living, that his name may be no more remembered. But, O Lord of hosts, that judgest righteously, that triest the reins in the heart, let me see thy vengeance on them, for unto thee have I revealed my cause. Therefore, thus saith the Lord, the man of Anathoth, that seek thy life, saying, Prophesy not in the name of the Lord, thou that die not by our hand. Therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will punish them. The young men shall die by the sword, their sons and their daughters shall die by famine. And there shall, no, and there shall be no remnant of them, but I will bring evil upon the man of Anathoth, even the year of their visitation. Okay, chapter 12, verse 1. Righteous art thou, O Lord, when I plead with thee, yet let me talk with thee of thy judgments. Whereof doth the way of the wicked prosper? Wherefore are all they happy that deal very treacherously? Thou hast planted them, yea, they have taken root. They grow, yea, they bring forth fruit. Thou art near in their mouth and far from their reins. But thou, O Lord, knowest me. Thou hast seen me and tried mine heart toward thee. Pull them out like sheep for the slaughter and prepare them for the day of slaughter. How long shall the land mourn and the herbs of every field wither? For the wickedness of them that dwell therein. The beasts are consumed and the birds because they said, you shall not see our last end. If thou hast run with the footmen and they have wearied thee, then how canst thou contend with horses? And if in the land of peace wherein thou trusteth, they wearied thee, then how wilt thou do in the swelling of Jordan? For even thy brethren and the house of thy father, even they have dealt treacherously with thee. Yea, they have called a multitude after thee. Believe them not, though they speak fair words unto thee. For this is the word of the Lord. So let's, uh, let's unpack these confessions and see what they have to teach us about uh, our God and also living the Christian life. Okay, so firstly, let's consider the shattering revelation. Now, has there been a time in your life where you have learnt of something and it completely shatters you? Okay, what you hear is like a wrecking ball that smashes you to smithereens. Perhaps a loved one was in an accident or they received a terrible diagnosis. Uh, maybe it was when you were told of the death of someone close or there was somebody who you looked up to and you find out they've done some terrible things or maybe there was some other occasion where you were left completely shattered. This is what Jeremiah experiences in his first confession recorded in the closing section of the 11th chapter. He finds out that there was a conspiracy to have him killed. Now, I'm sure most of us would be a little bit rattled if we found out that we were on a hit list. There were people out there who wanted us dead, and they had developed plans to execute it. Okay, that would not be a nice feeling. You know, I often think about this when I read the paper about the gang issues in our area, and someone's got a million-dollar bounty placed on their head. I'm not sure how you sleep at night or how you live life, okay, knowing that, but I guess that's the price you pay when you become a criminal. But imagine being innocent, like Jeremiah, and people wanted him 
dead. And what made this revelation sting all the more was that the conspiracy had been developed by the people of his village, from his hometown. Look at verse 21. It says, Therefore, thus saith the Lord of the man of Anathoth, that seek thy life. And the first verse of the book of Jeremiah reveals that he is from the priestly family in Anathoth. So these were the people that Jeremiah grew up with, those that knew him best. Those who you would assume would be sympathetic and supportive were actually cruel and calculated. And what made this particularly devastating is that his own family were involved. This is apparent from verse 6 in chapter 12. And that would be a shattering revelation, wouldn't it? Your own flesh and blood wants to shed your blood. I think we understand that this would be shattering. Now, we probably don't understand how shattering it would be for your village or your community to oppose you. As here in Australia, we are not as community-centered. But as one writer put it, for any man of Israel, rejection by his society was a great grief. The village which gave him his basic social and psychological security turned against him, and he was alone, cut off from those with whom he grew up, and unable to count on the support which was normally available to a villager. Okay, so this is a huge thing. And notice in verse 20 how determined and ruthless they were. Okay, this was not just an empty threat. Okay, it's not someone you know, talking rubbish online. Okay, but the second part of this verse says, Let us destroy the tree with the fruit thereof, and let us cut him off from the land of the living, that his name may be no more remembered. The idea is they view Jeremiah as a tree, they're going to cut him down, okay, dig the stump out so he'll never come back. And they want to ensure that his name would not be remembered, which seems to imply let's kill him before he has children. Okay, so his name is completely rubbed out. Again, that's a great disgrace for an Israelite. So this is a real and serious threat. But it leads to an obvious question. Why did they want to exterminate Jeremiah. Now, we're not given detailed specifics, but verse 21 gives us a clue. It says, Prophesy not in the name of the Lord that thou die not by our hand. So, in other words, they were upset by the message that he was preaching. He, like many people before him and many who have come after him, did not enjoy popularity and support as he faithfully proclaimed the word of God. So it's because he was faithful in executing the ministry the Lord entrusted to him that he faced this particular threat. So the men of Anathoth did not care to hear the word of the Lord. They were antagonistic. They were hostile toward it. And it isn't difficult to see why, because Anathoth was a town of priests. In the time of Solomon, Abiathar, the priest, was exiled. He was exiled to Anathoth. This was because of his treason. And this town continued to be the home of many priests. Okay, why is that significant? Well, Jeremiah, in his ministry, had been scathing of the priests. And he also condemned the idol worship, which would have helped their local economy. Okay, make idols, you sell them, puts money into a local town. So he was viewed as a traitor in his hometown. 
And yet it's obvious that Jeremiah was completely oblivious. Okay? He had no idea about this conspiracy. And hence, when it was revealed, it must have crushed him like a ton of bricks. Okay, how did he find out? Well, verse 18 tells us that the Lord gave him the knowledge. Okay, the Lord showed it to him, revealed what they were planning. It is as though the Lord gave him a sneak peek of the movie before the premiere. He drew back the curtains to reveal what had been conspired. Now we aren't told how the Lord did this. Could have been supernaturally. Could have been through human instrumentality. But the point that's stressed is that God knew of their wicked plan, even though Jeremiah didn't. And the Lord ensured that his man was protected. Jeremiah had the world's greatest intelligence agency working for him. And this protection was a fulfillment of the promise that was given to Jeremiah when he was called to ministry. Jeremiah chapter 1 and verse 8 says, Be not afraid of their faces, for I am with thee to deliver thee, saith the Lord. That was the promise, and here the promise is kept. The Lord was going to deliver Jeremiah. He would keep him safe from this murderous conspiracy. And yet it's evident that this completely rattled Jeremiah. And he used a common image of the time to explain how he felt. In verse 19, it says, But I was like a lamb or an ox that is brought to the slaughter, and I knew not that they had devised devices against me. So he felt like, <coughs> excuse me, he felt like the lamb or that ox that was led by its owner to the slaughter. The animal has no idea what's happening. They trusted their owner, but then the knife comes down. That's how Jeremiah felt. And perhaps he had Isaiah 53 on his mind, brought as a lamb to the slaughter. And it reveals that he was completely unaware of the intention. And this no doubt had a huge impact on the prophet. Try and put yourself in this situation. Imagine hearing that your own family is part of a conspiracy to murder you simply because you're faithful to the Bible. That that would be a pretty tough pill to swallow. And upon having this revealed to him, notice what Jeremiah does, verse 20. He prays. It's a good response. That's the best response. He appeals to the Lord. He refers to him as the one who judges righteously and knows the reins of the heart. Okay, so the Lord knows everything. He knows the motives and desires of the heart. And this appeal from Jeremiah seems to establish his innocence. Lord, you know that I have done nothing wrong to deserve this, that this is completely unjust. And then he asks the Lord to avenge his mistreatments. And the Lord obliges. Anathoth would be destroyed by the sword and by famine, verse 22. And we know that this was fulfilled by Babylon. Now, this demand of the prophet that God would unleash vengeance on his enemies may make us feel a little bit uncomfortable because we know that Jesus says we are to love our enemies. We would have preferred Jeremiah to say, you know, Father, forgive them. So what are we to make of this? Well, one author offers this explanation. She says, The plea for vengeance in Jeremiah is a stumbling block to many modern readers and is certainly not an easy issue. In the scriptures, we often read of people who cry out to God asking him to avenge them. 
There are a few things to note here. First, the prophet does not take revenge himself. He pleads his case before God, the only righteous judge. Secondly, Jeremiah is not just complaining about his personal grief. His plea concerns what is done to him as a prophet. It's all about God's message. It is God's case. Similarly, we read in Revelation 6.10 that the souls of the martyrs cry out in a loud voice, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? God will not let injustice go unpunished. Everything will be brought under his judgment. Does this mean we can pray for revenge against our enemies? We're told in Romans 12 to bless instead of curse, just as Jesus forgave his enemies. This is our primary task. But at the same time, we may commend our own or other cases of injustice to God, trusting that he is the righteous judge who will bring righteousness and justice in the end. And it is uh, worth noting that the Lord did honor this request. So it's not always sinful to ask the Lord for such a thing when it's pleading for justice. But the key is that we are to allow the Lord to avenge, not seek it ourselves. Vengeance is the Lord's, not ours to give. Now, what do we learn about God and the Christian life from this conspiracy? There are many threads we could pull on. I want to consider five. Okay, number one, faithfulness to God's word will often bring hostility. A faithfulness to God's word will often bring hostility. These death threats resulted because Jeremiah faithfully preached the message that God had given to him. He did God's will. He suffered greatly. For us as Christians, as we proclaim and live according to the truth of the scriptures, we ought not to be shocked or surprised by hostility. A Bible-believing and practicing believers are becoming more of a minority in our country. Society is drifting further away from biblical principles, and hence anger and antagonism toward us, it will be increasing. And understand, we're never promised in the Bible that if we become a Christian, life's going to be smooth sailing. It's going to be easy. We're not promised that. In fact, we can be guaranteed that storms will come in our life. The winds and the waves are going to smash us if we share and live by the Scriptures. That's guaranteed. This is part of the cost of following Jesus. Second thing we learn is that God knows all things. Jeremiah was not aware of this conspiracy. He didn't know about the bounty on his head, so to speak. But God did. And that's because God knows all things. We refer to this as his omniscience. Here's a definition from one theologian. God fully knows himself and all things actual and possible in one simple and eternal act. I encourage you to think about that when you go home. That's an amazing thing. This is amazing. There is nothing that God does not know. There is nothing that he can learn or discover. He's aware of everything. There's nothing that happens in your life or in this world that he doesn't know about already. There's nothing hidden. There's nothing unknown to God. And this is a great comfort that God knows everything. He is or wise, and he can reveal things to us that we need to know, just like he did with Jeremiah. A couple of other practical implications. 
we can be honest and open to him just like Jeremiah. Jeremiah pours out his heart in prayer because God knows already how we feel. He knows what we're thinking. I'm not sure sometimes why we're so concerned in you know, what we say and so forth because God already knows what's going on within. Be transparent. He already knows. And we also learn in the text that God knows secret sins. He knew the conspiracy hatched in secrecy. And he knows all your secret sins. He knows my secret sins. Okay? There are no such thing as secret sins with God. Okay? And often he may expose them. So don't use the lie of secrecy to continue in sin because God sees. God knows. And may that be an incentive for us to pursue holiness. Number three, God protects his people. Okay, divine protection is something that's very evident in the text. The Lord was watching over Jeremiah and ensured that the conspiracy to take his life would be frustrated. And get this, God has your days numbered. And no one or nothing can change that. Okay, so in a sense, we are invincible until the Lord says otherwise. Now sure, that isn't a reason to be foolish or silly. But God can protect and deliver us from all threats. Okay, that, that's amazing. Now, that doesn't mean he always does. Sometimes he calls us to suffer for his glory. But we do see in the text divine protection, and that is still a reality for us. Number four, God judges sin. Okay, the text is clear that Anathoth was judged by the Lord for their wicked conspiracy against Jeremiah. Okay, the Lord would not let the people of Anathoth go free, that they would be judged on the basis of their behavior toward the prophet. And this illustrates that God will right wrong. Okay, he will ensure justice. He will judge sin. It may not happen when we want or in the way that we want, okay, but we can be assured that God will do what is right. Okay, no sin will remain unjudged. And the fifth thing from the conspiracy is how it points us to Christ. As we consider the conspiracy of Jeremiah's hometown, it's hard to not think of Jesus because he too was rejected by his hometown. He famously declared, a prophet is not without honor, but in his own country and among his own kin and in his own house. That was true for Jeremiah and it was certainly true for Jesus, okay, like Jeremiah, Jesus was conspired against. He was rejected by his family and friends for preaching. He was a lamb led to the slaughter. Hence, Jeremiah was one of the prophets who foretold by his life how Christ would suffer, Acts 3.18. There's a couple of big differences between Jeremiah and Jesus. One was a sinner and one was a saviour. And Jesus didn't ask for vengeance like Jeremiah, but rather he laid down his life to die for those who conspired against him. He was punished for those who developed the wicked plan. Okay, that's the greatness and glory of Jesus. He is the one that's greater than Jeremiah. So this is okay, the first confession, which we've considered under the heading, the shattering revelation Let's now move to the second point, which I've entitled The Struggle Revealed. 
You know, I, I appreciate passages of Scripture like the first six verses that commence the 12th chapter that form Jeremiah's second confession because it reveals that even greats of the faith have their moments when they struggle. Yeah, it's not just me. Even prophets have questions for God. And I love the honesty that the Scriptures employ. Have you ever thought about this? The Bible refuses to sugarcoat their heroes. And that's evidence for the divine nature of the Bible. Because if it was written by man, it would tend to ignore and gloss over the flaws and struggles of the heroes. And we wouldn't have passages of Scripture like this one before us. You know, this personal communication with the Lord, where Jeremiah pours out his heart in private, obviously follows the decision by the Lord to judge the people at Anathoth. And it's as though Jeremiah says it in verse 1, Lord, I know you're right. I'm not questioning your integrity, but I'm going to argue anyway. Okay, can we talk about this? I know what you've said, but I'm struggling with the point that these wicked people, you know, those ones who want to kill me, they are so prosperous. Okay, these wicked people, they're happy. They're living it up. They're having a wonderful time. They've got these beautiful homes. They've got the best chariots. Lord, how is that fair? Why won't you deal with it right now? Okay, that's what he wants it. Jeremiah identified in verse 2 that they were prosperous because of the Lord. Okay, that's a true statement. The Lord allowed this. They or nobody can enjoy any pleasure or prosperity unless God permits it. And hence, Jeremiah knew the theology, but he's struggling to appropriate this in the day-to-day moments. And we can see the struggle in verse 3. Jeremiah was righteous. He's doing what the Lord wanted, and yet his life was difficult. He was suffering. But the wicked, on the other hand, they're having a wonderful time. Life seems so easy for them. As one writer pointed out, Jeremiah's complaint is the reverse of Psalm 1. In Psalm 1, it is the righteous man who's like a tree planted by the rivers of water and is prosperous. In Psalm 1, the wicked are just chaff that the wind driveth away. But here in Jeremiah 12, the opposite is happening, and this is a real struggle for the prophets. And the question that he posed, it's not a new one, and it's still one that's asked today. Perhaps you've asked this question before. Why do the wicked flourish? Why do they thrive? This is a question that's asked in a number of places throughout Scripture. Habakkuk complained that the wicked were thriving and outnumbering the righteous. Job asked, wherefore do the wicked live, become old, yea, are mighty in power? Asaph penned a whole psalm on this very dilemma. He said in Psalm 73, For I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So this is a commonly asked question. But what's intriguing is how the Lord answers the question of Jeremiah. The response is quite unexpected because he doesn't answer the question. In fact, the Lord's reply comes in the form of, Another question, and he uses two metaphoric images to make his point, and they're both in verse 5. 
Okay, the first image is that of a foot race. It says, if thou hast run with the footmen, and they have wearied thee, then how canst thou contend with horses? What in the world is that talking about? Well, the point that's made is that, okay, Jeremiah, if you are wearied, if you're fatigued with running with men, okay, if that's a struggle for you, how are you going to run with the horses? How can you catch the horses? That's the idea. The other image is in the second half of verse 5. It says, If in the land of peace, wherein thou trustest, they wearied thee, then how wilt thou do in the swelling of Jordan? So the idea conveyed is that if you were struggling in Anathoth, okay, your hometown, predominantly a place of peace, how will you handle the swelling of Jordan? Okay, that's a reference to the floodplains where there's dense vegetation and it was known to contain many predatory animals, including a member of the lion family. So quite a dangerous place. So what the Lord is conveying in both of these images is, Jeremiah, if you can't handle this, how are you going to handle what's coming? Jeremiah, this is only the beginning. It's going to get far worse. And you think, great, didn't want to hear that. Okay, but if you're struggling at Anathoth, how are you going to go at Jerusalem? And it's interesting that horses are included in the first metaphor. That may well be a subtle reference to Babylon. Okay, how would Jeremiah survive that, okay, Babylon, if he's struggling to keep his head out of water with the comparatively less trial? Okay, this is the Lord really saying, you know, my dear child, cheer up. You haven't seen anything yet. The worst is still coming. Now, sure, I understand this hurts. But if you can't cope with this difficulty, you need to consider how you'd respond to something far greater. As one commentator said, if he found it difficult in Anathoth, how would he fare in Jerusalem? Later on, Jeremiah would have to spend a night in the stocks, confinement in a cistern, and imprisonment in the court of the guard. The troubles he was having in Anathoth were nothing compared to the troubles he would have later in Jerusalem, Babylon, or Egypt. Things were bad, but not the worst. If Jeremiah thought he had trouble today, he needed to wait until tomorrow. Anyone who gets discouraged, downtrodden, and defeated over little things will never fulfill his divine calling. If even little disappointments tempt Jeremiah to leave his calling, how will he cope with real persecution? Okay, so this was the answer that the Lord gave Jeremiah. And it's a real dose of reality. No, no doubt it's designed to recalibrate the prophet. I think as is often the case, difficulties had pushed him off course. He needed to be reorientated, which in this situation required a gentle rebuke from the Lord. And the biblical principle that we have at play here is that Jeremiah needed to view the current struggles as preparation for things that he was going to face in the future. We could say the trials and troubles at Anathoth were a training session before the real game. And hence the Lord encourages Jeremiah to view the present challenges as training for the greater challenges to come. And this reminds us that the difficulties and challenges of life in the hands of the Lord always have some purpose. Okay, what, what we endure is never pointless. 
our God is always doing something through them. We may not know what he's doing. We may never know what he's doing. But we can rest assured, as the song says, God doesn't move without purpose or plan. And this reality is to help us through the storm-tossed seas of life. We aren't suffering just for the sake of suffering. And often the trials and tribulations of life are preparing us for something else. We could say that they're part of the spiritual gym that's training us for what God has in store. Yeah, the Lord does not waste the difficulties and suffering that come into our lives. What Jeremiah was enduring was designed to prepare him for what was coming. And that reveals the grace and goodness of God. Because he doesn't just allow the biggest challenge to come first, as it seems that would have crushed Jeremiah. But he trained him with the smaller weights before the heavy weights. Okay, that is the kindness and goodness of our gods. Okay, but we learn here in this account, and we learn through the greatest suffering ever recorded, that being the cross of Jesus Christ, okay, where he took the sin of mankind and was punished in our place, that there is a plan and a purpose behind suffering. That was the case with Jeremiah. That was the case with the cross. Yeah, that's always the case with our God. And hence, we need to learn to trust our God and to draw strength and hope from him in the present challenges, knowing that there's always a point and a purpose behind them. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I I do thank you uh, for this uh, portion of Scripture. Lord, I appreciate its honesty and how it reveals the the struggles uh, that that Jeremiah had. And uh, Lord, I I do thank you that uh, you always have a plan and a purpose and what you're, you're seeking to accomplish in our life, nothing is, is ever pointless. And, and that's a, a, wonderful, a wonderful comfort. Lord, please help us to learn uh, from the things uh, that, that are recorded in the portion of Scripture that we considered tonight. Lord, please keep us safe as we travel home. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.